see you, Donald. Why does black consciousness pose such a threat to racist power structures in the struggle for dignity and freedom? How do black folk use their critical powers of creativity to dismantle racism and imagine a world where black existence is possible and imagine that someday we will all be free? A conversation in this hour with one of the great thinkers of our time. I am delighted, honored, and humbled to have him on this program. He is Professor and head of the philosophy department at UConn, Dr. Lewis Gordon. How are you, sir? I am fine, thank you. And I must add an additional thanks because I love Donnie Hathaway. I love him and too. Just to hear, I just love that. And uh, yeah, that point about freedom. I wrote an essay a while back called No Longer Enslaved Yet Not Quite Free. Mm. Freedom is richer than simply the question of the absence of bondage. And that's such a beautiful song that exemplifies it. No, it is a beautiful song. You can't do much better than Donny Hathaway. I've said many times, to my mind, he is one of the most underrated. I got a list of my top five most underrated uh, singers of all time. Uh, underappreciated, and Donnie Hathaway is on that list, and so I'm glad that uh, to know that we are simpatico in that regard. We both love Donnie Hathaway, which means which means we can have a great conversation because you love Donnie Hathaway, I love Donnie Hathaway, and I love your work. I love the way your mind processes things. I love this book, uh, Fear of Black Consciousness, and so I'm just delighted, as I said, to have you on for the hour. So much to unpack, and we're going to jump right to it. Let me start with this though. Uh, since you went there, I'm going to follow you. Um, first of all, this question, uh, to your mind, is, is Donnie Hathaway's claim, uh, how, how does that claim sit with you that someday we will all be free or is it just a great lyric? Oh, it's not just a great lyric. It's been a message that's been coming from people of African descent. The moment we were placed on those ships across the Atlantic but it's not only from us. It's been the message that has been the struggle for the indigenous peoples here, the indigenous peoples of Africa, for people all across, across the globe, because they understand the we, that we, this is the, incru- the, the crucial part. The we from those who are from below, from those who are what Fenon called the damned of the earth, mm-hmm. that we is inclusive. The we of colonization, white supremacy, the we of the very notion of superiority is premised upon the idea of a false reality of conquerors and conquered with identification with the conquerors. Mm. But, but to do that, they must construct a false reality that holds everyone to the bondage of lies. So in our freedom, and it's not only someone like Donny Hathaway, you know, that was the, the call that you could have from Samuel Delaney, Anna Julia Cooper, the list is long, which is when I enter, and the I here means we, where we enter, and that, that we is the flourishing of true humanity. Mm. That is where we'll flourish. Because simply put, Oppression, dehumanization, colonization, racism, all of those things are about dehumanization. And so to realize our humanity, that is an important element of what it means to be free. Ooh, we, ooh, we, ooh, we. This is going to be rich, rich, rich. <laughs> we're, we're just getting started. And Dr. Gordon has got all of my senses titillated right now, intellectually, and I am excited 
to have one of the great thinkers of our time on in this hour. His most uh, recent book, a celebrated text by everybody, is called Fear of Black Consciousness. When we come forward, I want to go back to that essay first that he that he teased me with and get him to unpack a bit of that essay, and then we'll jump straight away into the text. It's going to be a great hour with Dr. Lewis Gordon on KBLA Talk And expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Dr. Lewis Gordon on KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to have him in uh, this hour. His uh, new text is called Fear of Black Consciousness. He's a professor, head of the philosophy department at UConn. I just love talking to philosophers, period. <laughs> I learn so much and I get challenged. Uh, you heard me say many times, I love uh, to re-examine uh, my assumptions. I love to expand my inventory of ideas. And at our best, I hope this is what this uh, station and what this program does for you. Challenges you to reexamine the assumptions you hold. It helps you expand your inventory of ideas. And I can assure you on both of those scores, you're going to be challenged in this hour by, by um, Dr. Lewis Gordon. So, Doc, you, you teased me a moment ago. I want to get some of this, man, before I move into this text. This essay that you wrote, we, we started with some Donnie Hathaway, and you jumped right into this, uh, this essay that you wrote. Uh, uh, give me the title of that again and, and unpack some of that for, for me in the audience, man. Sure, it's called No Longer Enslaved Yet Not Quite Free. And I, one thing I got to say is I'm so delighted to be having this conversation with you because the way I look at philosophy, I, look at, I don't look at philosophy as simply an endeavor of professional scholars who debate one another in journals and so forth. I see philosophy as part of the human quest for truth and our relationship to reality. Mm. And that makes a philosopher a lifelong student. And one of the things I've appreciated about you is that you love learning and you love learning with community. Mm. And that, that is part of a tradition that goes back 
at least 5,000 years, particularly yes. in East Africa. For the listeners, if they want to go look up Antef, the letter from Antef, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But, but to the specific question, that's an essay that informed the book I recently wrote. And it's rather poignant that uh, we got into that conversation because I began this morning with a conversation with inmates in the Minnesota Department of Correctional um, Cor- Department of Corrections, mm-hmm. and they're they're a good example of this because you see, you can you if even if a person were to uh, be released from a facility or escape from a facility, in a sense that person is no longer in the bondage, but that's not necessarily freedom. Mm. And one of the things that we all know. Whether it's escape, there are people right now who romanticize fugitivity, but what they don't realize is that there's a reason why every fugitive wants to go home. Ultimately, freedom is about having a home. It's mm. about belonging. And so even, even though there's a 13th Amendment, since the 13th Amendment and despite the 14th Amendment in the United States, in other words, the, the outlawing of enslavement, unfortunately, except for people who are incarcerated, and uh, what has happened has been a determined commitment to say that uh, black people who are not legally enslaved do not belong here. And that effort to create non-belonging is an attack on freedom. Mm. And it's not only black people, because what is done to Native American people is the assertion that Native American people belong to the past here, but not the future. Mm. And this idea that there are people who are, say, um, a a product of the colonial moment, uh, there was no reason for many of the people we call black today to have called ourselves that before. We were Oza, uh, we were uh, Wolof, Fulari, we were, you know, Luo, Kokoyo, all these groups. But the transformation into blackness also created whiteness. And what has happened with that has been something profoundly existentially um, horrific, which is to create the idea of a people and in that creation make them indigenous to that time and then tell them they don't belong. Mm. So what does that? So what that means then is to say your home is to not have a home, which is absurd, neurotic, and just cruel. So this is one of the things in which that is the form of unfreedom. It's not just simply the material bondage; it's the effort to say existence is better without you, and to fight against that is also the quest for freedom, because to transform that requires building a world in which that lie, that lie against one's humanity, has to be taken on. And this is understood through, through which we, what we know about ourselves is that no human being can live as a human being by her, him, or their self. Mm-hmm. Freedom is about a relationship. We have to be in relationships. And so when we take on that task of building a relationship, we're building homes. And those homes can be, for instance, for the, your, your listeners who find a place that they can hear that reminds them that they're valued, they belong. 
It could be their studies. It could be their families. There's so many ways. And you and I know that throughout, despite all that effort to tell black people we don't belong, we have been able to transform places into reminding ourselves of our humanity yes. to our belonging with one another. Yes. No. I've said many times that we have learned to love this country in spite of, not because of. Uh, and, and at our best, we are, we are the conscience of this country, always have been. Uh, and so I, I couldn't agree more. Um, let me ask this question. It, it, it might, uh, for one of your stature uh, and intellect, it might sound uh, elementary, it might sound sophomoric, and yet I think you'll take the reason why I'm asking it, Professor Gordon. And I'm asking it because it is a debate, a question that many, many people uh, in our community and uh, continue, I think, to wrestle with. You talked about the dehumanization of our people. And by any other definition, uh, that just means to my mind that our humanity is always being contested by somebody. So we're really talking about the contestation of black humanity. And the question is simply this. Why us? Of all the people on the globe, why is there always a contestation of black humanity? Well, the short answer is that it wasn't always us, but it has been us for about the past 400, going on 500 years. Mm -hmm. And this is a, some, one of the things we need to bear in mind. One of the dangers is when we make ourselves so absolute that we fail to see our relationship to history. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, I often say people think that their blacks are the blacks, <laughs> uh, just like people think their Jews are the Jews or their Muslims are the Muslims, etc. Right? It's mm -hmm. always... You know, but that's when we're too 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 narrow in our vision. But to give it, but 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 there is a way in which there we can get a sense of this. A real insight was from Frantz Fanon, and many listeners may know who he was, the famous psychiatrist, philosopher, and revolutionary from Martinique. Mm -hmm. And Fanon wrote a book called Black Skin White Mask. And a lot of people don't get the book. They think the book is about black people wearing white masks, but that's not what the book's about. The book is about two kinds of lies. The first lie is the lie that black people are absolutely sealed into our skin. In other words, that we're locked without possibility. The second lie is the white mask. Mm. But what many people don't realize, the white mask is what white people wear. It's the mask that lie to white people that they're superior to all other people. Mm -hmm. And so if you create a people who are superior to human beings and you try to force another group of people to be inferior to, uh, to human beings, Fanon asked, what in the world happened to humanity? So in other words, we're not properly things like some gods above humanity, and we're not subhuman. We're people. Mm. Now, the question of why us, well, the, 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 the immediate answer is going to be that we, uh, not the people who became black people, and not only in Africa, but in places like Australia and New Zealand and South Asia, mm -hmm. if you notice the pattern in all the people who are designated as black people, they, uh, all of us, tend to be linked to the ancient. And in the ancient, there is a form of fantasy when one tries to construct oneself as superior in which one treats of oneself as a god fully born. And so what happens is 
there is a hostility to the truth of ancestry. The truth of ancestry is just straightforward. Mm-hmm. There wasn't historically white people. Mm-hmm. And if we look historically, if we look, in other words, what all the science reveals, is that if you go back around 8,000 years, there weren't even light-skinned people. They were just all dark and brown people. Now, that is a truth, but in it, it's not about who's superior or inferior, because those people just saw themselves was of what we would call today just some Africans with light skin. But once one constructs the lie, one has to, of course, break the mirror of the origins. And so there's a whole edifice of lies that try to support the notion of white supremacy, and it's premised on the idea that we're the opposite of that, that blackness is supposed to be something you move from. But if you're doing that, you're moving from reality. Mm. To be black Mm -hmm. is to be in an ongoing realization of reality. And this is one of the things, you know, all you got to do if you want to take a look at this is just pick up a child care book. If you pick up a child care book that says black child care, mm-hmm. you're going to hear a whole bunch of people talk about what the reality is that children face in this and any other society. You pick up a book that doesn't say black child care, it's going to say some generic stuff that completely is designed to create a kind of you know, colonial master who is deluded in his reality. Because all children ultimately face struggles, and those struggles are the truth of society. So why us? It's because every time we open our eyes, and actually, and you know, there's a history of trying to get black people not to look white people in the eye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but every time that eye looks back, and there's a human being looking forward, then it's saying this notion of dehumanization is a lie. And we exemplify that quite a bit. It doesn't mean that we're more special than other people, because a lot of people can be made black. But that ancientness, that humanity has been around for, for our version, Homo sapiens, 300,000 years, hominins, nearly 2 million. But the basic fact, the basic fact is that a lot of the systems of privatization, exploitation, all of those systems depend on trying to make a separate as a species, rather than dealing with the truth that we depend upon one another. The absolute, I've been doing this uh, 30 plus years now, and that is the absolute most profound answer I've ever heard to the question, why us? And if you've ever uh, ever wondered why us, there you have it, courtesy of Dr. Lewis Gordon. Uh, His new book is called Fear of Black Consciousness, and I'm I'm working my way toward that. We've laid a a nice foundation here. I told you I need every minute of this, uh, and I can see already he's going to be invited back because I I can't get to all this in 60 minutes even. But when we come forward, I want to go right to this question right quick of um, what a philosopher says when he's addressing um, inmates in the Minnesota Department of Corrections. I'm just curious. I would love to have been in that audience to hear what uh, Lewis Gordon was saying to inmates, specifically black inmates. What does a black philosopher say to black inmates? I want to hear that, and then we're going to get into this book, The Fear uh, of Black Consciousness. Lewis Gordon is on KBLA Talk. We're talking in this hour about my people, about our people, about good people with Dr. Lewis Gordon, uh, professor and head of the philosophy department at UConn. His new uh, celebrated text is called Fear of Black Consciousness. I want to get straight away into that. Before I do that, uh, Dr. Gordon, I was uh, fascinated to hear you say that you started your day 
and we're honored to have you on for this hour. But you started your day giving a talk this morning uh, to brothers incarcerated at the Minnesota Department of Corrections. And I wonder if you could just top line for me, what does a black philosopher say to black prison inmates? Wow. You know, the commercials you just had, so hit it on the nail on the head. You know, you had Stevie who talked about love is in need of love. Mm. You, you know, it went on to talk about questions of addiction. And one of the things we know when we're talking about oppression and exploitation is that you can actually exploit people better if you get them addicted to hate and their degradation. Mm. You get them to believe things about themselves that Lord are false. Him. Lord him. And uh, so... You know, one of the things I got to say right away is I got to say a huge thanks to Sue Hee Kim, or known as Ruth Ann Kim. She is the uh, instructor who invited me, mm-hmm. and because uh, they were reading my book, I didn't know. And the moment I found out, I said, "Yo, I'm coming." <laughs> you know, I want to talk. Not even if they weren't reading my book, because for me, it's a privilege and honor to be able to meet with our people. Mm-hmm. And this is something people forget which is if you're in a punishing society, incarcerated people's humanity is treated as erased. And some of the, one of the mysteries many people don't, don't get outside of black communities is why we welcome our convicts back. We welcome them back with love. Mm-hmm. The idea, I've, every, every, at least I, every, I've grown up around incarcerated relatives, and they come home, and they are loved. Mm-hmm. So I, I bring that up mainly because it was such a rich conversation. We, one of the things I made very clear, because I see it as an honor, a privilege, and a joy, I was there as a co-learner. In other words, that meeting was for us to learn together. Mm-hmm. I wasn't there as Moses with the tablets, mm-hmm. in other words. The second thing is that Boy, they had a lot to say, and among them, we had a wonderful conversation on radical love. Particularly, they were moved by the section in the book in which I talked about Harriet Bailey, mm-hmm. who, for many listeners, that was Frederick Douglass's mother. Yes. And I, I, talk, I, 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 I talked about her as an illustration of what real existential political commitment is because it's for things greater than oneself, and it's a love that affects a world of people whom one will never meet, one will never know. We talked about justice and the distinction between justice and health and why we need to have a healthy form of justice. We talk a lot in the United States about justice, but it's not about justice. It's about punishment. Mm-hmm. It's about contractual stuff. Justice is about what makes people's lives better, if it's linked with health, which is very ancient. That's like an ancient African concept of might. But we also talked about uh, questions of what learning is. We talked about all kinds of things. But a fundamental thing in, in the end is for us to talk about what it is to embrace and respect one another as human beings and to be committed to building a world that can do that. We also talked about freedom and the distinction between that and liberty. We talked about some of the things that you and I have been talking about this morning. And I got to tell you, it was just moving and rich, the ideas they, they, they had to say. Mm-hmm. And in, 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 in that context, one of the things we also talked about is how people don't understand the complexities of capitalism and socialism, mm. which is which was really rather interesting. Because in my work, what I often point out is that uh, capitalism actually is not interested in markets 
It's actually about the elimination of markets through the fetishizing of one market. But also socialism, what other people don't understand is that they are two sides of a similar coin in which if one wants to eliminate markets, then one has one group that controls the markets. But humanity has always had plural markets of communication, of love, of joy, of news. In other words, markets pluralistically understood are very human. Mm-hmm. And, the de- and the dehumanization of that is part of what we are dealing with <laughs> in terms of the lies inherited. Yeah. And people oversimplify that. So we, we broke out of that naive, exclusive, one versus the other logic into the more open understanding of all hands on deck. We yeah. have to have a creative way to build mm-hmm. a better world for humanity. I'm just I'm just giggling and laughing, uh, uh, not with you but at you because the, the the longer we talk, the deeper this thing gets, man. It, it just, oh. <laughs> it, just it, it just gets richer and richer and deeper and deeper. Or as the old gospel song says, every round goes higher. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's, and it, you see my point, right? Yeah, I do. I get that's, it loud and clear. That's yeah. what the brothers were talking about. Yeah, they, yeah. We 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 symbolically embraced each other at the end of the meeting because yeah. it was virtual. No, I get it. I get it. Um, I'm watching my time here, and it. Again, we we, we got to have to. You got to come back. We got to do more of this, man. <laughs> I'll be delighted. I, I would be delighted to have you come back. Let me just ask you a direct question. You've already teed up some of what's in the text for those who will want to get it, and I know many will after this conversation. But why does black consciousness pose such a threat to these racist power structures in our struggle for dignity and freedom? Oh, it's very straightforward. It's because it's like gaslighting. Gaslighters are lying to people, and they want them to believe the lies. Mm -hmm. Lowercase black consciousness is basically what, and this is something that the inmates and I talked about, right? Lowercase black consciousness is a system that tells black people we're a problem and tries to get us to believe we're a problem. Mm -hmm. But uppercase black consciousness is when you say, wait a minute, and this is what Du Bois noticed, this is what Fanon Richard Wright and a Julie Cooper, all these people know this. There's a point at which you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't there a problem with a society that makes people into problems? And the moment, this is what the inmates said, I was, ta- I was talking about a society that makes them into problems. Wow, wow, there, wow, wow, wow. There are, there's, there's a better way. We don't need to have a punishing society. We could have a society that doesn't make people into problems, but address the problems people face. Mm. Once you could see that black people are people who face problems but are not the problem, now you have potential, and that's called potentiated black consciousness, uppercase B, and that's when you are now on the path to freedom. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when we, I got to catch my breath, man. When we come forward, more of our conversation, this rich, rich dialogue with Dr. Lewis Gordon, author of the book Fear of Black Consciousness. He's on KBLA Talk 1580. Find a righteous rage and don't be afraid to say what you see. For KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Gordon, you dropped a word earlier that I want to come back to. And let me just say, speaking of dropping, you dropping bars, as the kids say, you dropping bars all over the place uh, today in this conversation. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm grateful for it. I'm just trying to pick them up as fast as you dropping them. But you mentioned the word creativity a moment ago. Let me ask you right quick again, watching my time here. How do black folk use... Um, the critical powers of our creativity uh, to do our part to the extent we can to dismantle racism. And as I said earlier, imagine a world where our existence is possible and our humanity is, if not celebrated, at least recognized and acknowledged. 
our creativity, our creativity is connected to our relationship with one another and reality and our life-affirming practices. Mm. I often say, you know, one of the lies that's told to us is, is this, this ridiculous notion that we get up every day looking in the mirror, hating ourselves. The truth is we get up in the mirror every day thinking about how we're going to get through the day, and we also look forward to time with one another. It's love, and love is a creative force. And in addition to that love, which I also transform into radical love, is a profound understanding of what commitment is. And here's what I mean by it. You know, our ancestors, and I'm talking about our recent ancestors. I'm not talking about the most ancient. I'm talking about recent, like over the past few hundred years, ancestors, had a whole world that told them they didn't matter, that nothing they could do could work. And that's one of the lies, right? Where being thrown every day today that we can't do anything. Can't, 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 can't. Yet, we have people who every day, our ancestors, found a way to make even the most meager piece of little crumpet of food turn into something delicious. Mm-hmm. We're able to make a transformation not only to say, I deserve pleasure by making this food taste good, what we call soul food all the way through to the question of how we are able to make freedom manifest in our movement, the creativity. We created, for instance, improvisational music, the way the blues works. The blues Mm. doesn't lie about reality. Mm. The blues brings dissonance and consonant together and create a form of responsible joy. We We also assert ourselves through bringing out the profundity as weird as this sounds, as being able to take a walk. And within that framework, one of the things we deal with is this. Every day we're told that our ability to live as a human being is impossible. But we know that our ancestors basically said they're going to transcend that. And how do we know? Because they were the conditions of us being here today. The world wasn't meant for their survival, but their love enabled ours. And that means as we face our challenges, we need to understand that it's not about the language can't, it's about the language do. And implicit in doing is an understanding of what it means to work for something greater than yourself. And that is what radical love is about. Our creativity is an expression of radical love. The world was not meant for their survival, but their radical love endures. Um, Every Friday on this program, as you know, we do the best of Tavis Smiley. Uh, three of the best hours are from that preceding week. Um, there's automatic uh, <laughs> consensus in the studio right now as I look at all of my producers and my team here. Uh, there's a consensus. This conversation will repeat tomorrow <laughs> as part of our best of well, show. Uh, as part of our best of show. Uh, that we, we, I don't know what the other two hours would be, but I can guarantee you one of them is going to be Lewis Gordon, who's right now on KBLA Talk 50. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. One of my friends just texted me, Tavis, uh, Dr. Gordon is hitting my second, third, and fourth emotion. <laughs> so it's uh, he, he's working all of us today, and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I'm watching my clock. i got four minutes left. Let me see if I can get a couple things out right quick, Dr. Gordon. The book, once again, is called Fear of Black Consciousness. Fear of Black Consciousness by the professor and head of philosophy uh, at UConn, uh, Dr. 
Lewis Gordon. You mentioned this phrase earlier in this conversation, non-belonging. As I listened to all you said in this hour, what is your best counsel, or your wisest counsel uh, for how those of us who have been feeling, uh, perhaps perennially, this notion of uh, non-belonging, how do we how do we arrest um, those feelings born of believing those lies, as you mentioned earlier, that are often taught and told to us? Well, our time is limited, so the short answer is don't build your life on hate. Build your life on at least three elements. One, be constructive. Mm-hmm. Two, be courageous. And three, understand that love builds, hate destroys. There are people who always love to say stuff like burn it down, but then fine, you make everybody homeless. Mm. And you don't erase the memories of what people had and what they built. And so they may just build something even worse. The thing to do is to build constructively, lovingly, and courageously something that others could look back at you in history and say the words, thank you. My dear friend, Maya Angelou, who I spent uh, 27 good years with, traveled the world with, and just uh, sat at her feet all the time. Uh, over many, many wonderful conversations. Maya used to always say that courage is like a muscle. You have to work it out. You have to exercise. It doesn't just happen overnight, but courage for her was a muscle. What have you learned about courage, about being brave, about being bold? What I've learned is that if you let go of needing the outcome before performance, if you let go of dependency on recognition, in other words, If you don't take yourself too seriously, you can understand that sometimes you may discover something in your action, and that thing you discover in your action may surprise you. And that surprise is the manifestation of courage courage to do, act, or live what is worth living. Mm. And to your mind, i got two minutes left here, whatever happened to the notion of love in our public discourse. I could run the list, and you know it better than I do, of those who put love in the epicenter, in the center of the public square, uh, from King to Mandela to Gandhi. There's a long list of them. But whatever happened to your mind, in your, to your mind at least, uh, what happened to the notion of love in our public discourse? What happened is that it got dominated by a lie about what a human being is. Hmm. As a selfish, brutish creature that's simply trying to destroy uh, their brothers and sisters. The re- so thus, love became looked at as weakness. Mm. Yet, if you think about it, all love makes one vulnerable. And that vulnerability, that willingness to face that vulnerability, is extraordinarily courageous. So, we need to understand love as a strength because love builds. But arrogant love turns love into a monument. In other words, it's the kind of love that says, I love you because you're like me, which is just a reproduction of the self. That's arrogance. It's narcissism. But if one understands that one doesn't have to be permanent, that the world needs to be set free and live according to what fits those to come, that understanding of love is one in which one has emptied one's ego of arrogance and embraced the possibility of a world to come. I told you 60 minutes ago I was about to expose you to one of the great thinkers of our time. Did I lie? Did I lie? I I think not. (laughs) His name is Dr. Lewis Gordon. His book is called Fear of Black Consciousness. Fear of Black Consciousness by Dr. Lewis Gordon. 
professor and head of the philosophy department at UConn, the Huskies. Dr. Gordon, uh, as always, sir, uh, just <laughs> a great delight to listen to you. Thank you for this hour. It has been rich, rich, rich. More than that, it's just been sublime, and I want to thank you, sir. Thank you so much. And to the listeners, continue being safe, healthy, and also find joy. Find joy. Remember your humanity. You deserve joy. You're listening to KBLA Talk 15.